There are many ways people listen to Vision, including in cars through the Vision app. The Vision app is compatible with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. So if you have mobile coverage, you can stream any of Vision's live radio channels in crystal clear quality and enjoy a growing range of on-demand podcasts all on the go. There are other ways to connect your phone to your vehicle speakers too. You can see detailed instructions when you Google ways to listen to Vision. However and wherever you listen to Vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. I wonder if you've ever been sitting around the dinner table and dinner table conversation turns to issues where there's a connection to your Christian faith. Maybe it's those elements that are going on in the world, in your town, in your city, in your local community. But all of a sudden, the opportunity comes up to be able to share something of your faith. And you have this feeling, if I say something, will I completely blow it? Or will I say something that could be life-changing? Well, our special guest this hour is Jeff Vines. Jeff is an author. He wrote the book called Dinner with Skeptics. And he also pastors a church in California in the United States. The church is called Church of the Valley. Uh, He's also been a missionary to Africa and led a church in New Zealand. Uh, welcome along, Jeff Barnes. I think it's it's always good to be here in Australia. It's uh, like paradise. Beautiful weather, <laughs> beautiful people, and a lot of golf courses. <laughs> there you go. Well, Jeff, uh, while you're not on the golf course, uh, you're visiting friends, yeah. and you're also ministering in churches. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about a new program that you've got coming up called One Life, mm-hmm. about uh, one-on-one evangelism. Mm. And we might talk about that uh, a little later, but let's talk about Dinner with Skeptics. You get yeah. to that point in the conversation where something comes up and you think, here's my opportunity to share something that might be of value. What was the trigger for actually getting this book and uh, and putting those words and wisdom on paper? Yeah, you know, this is one of those experiences that you have that really changes your life forever from that day forward, because most of us think about uh, people who are not yet committed to Christ as people who are, or, are almost anti or at least skeptical. And so we're afraid that when we're put into a room, we're already, as Christians, put into a box. So if we say anything that kind of reinforces their presuppositions, we're going to think, oh, we've blown it, and now they'll never become a Christ follower. Now they think we're just crazy people, and we're aggressive, and we're rude. And so for most of us, even pastors, when we're in a setting or a room where people are asking questions, and they, and they feel aggressive questions, They've, they feel like these are, these are harsh, and I don't think I have an answer, we tend to panic and get defensive. And as soon as you do that, conversation's over. Uh, today especially, uh, the new generation really wants transparency and authenticity. They just want you to give them an answer to some of the difficult questions they're facing. They're actually trying to harmonize our idea of a good and merciful and kind God with all the pain and the suffering and the evil and the injustice and the politics of the world. And uh, so one night in Brisbane, uh, Australia, just uh, not too long ago, I checked into a hotel, uh, downtown Brisbane. And uh, I, I, it was kind of like the best of both worlds. I was here to do a basketball camp with Dick Bennett. Uh, Dick Bennett was the coach of the Wisconsin Badgers. His son, 
Tony Bennett, played in New Zealand and Australia, actually played for Sydney for two years. Uh, he was rehabilitating his knee to go back and sign a $3.3 million contract with the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I became good friends with the Bennett family. He calls me and he says, I'm doing a basketball camp for, the, uh, for some great basketball players in Brisbane in the mornings. Uh, this certain week in October, would you come? I said, man, fantastic. And then I looked at the calendar, and I realized I had a church planting conference going on at the same time. But it was in the evening. So I was going to be speaking up on the Gold Coast to a bunch of church planters and coaching basketball in the morning. So I thought, man, I've died and gone to heaven. I get to do my two favorite things. (laughs) So I checked into the hotel, uh, and it was a five-star hotel, downtown Brisbane. And uh, uh, the managing director of the hotel I describe her as the consummate professional. She came over and welcomed me by name. Welcome to our hotel, Mr. Vines. And I just wanted her to go away because I was trying to prepare for both the camp and the church planning conference. And she gave me a speech uh, that sounded like it was right out of the Brisbane Tourism Board. She told me about the new Greg Norman golf course. That was when Greg Norman had built borrowed, or it's a Brook, Brookville, Brookdale, something like that. But it's north of the city, I know. Great golf course. And uh, so I listened, and she went away, and she came back like a minute later. And she says, by the way, what do you do? And I thought, oh, great, I'm in Australia. And in America, if you say you're a pastor, there's a certain amount of respect. Let's be honest. In Australia, sometimes you might get the rolling of the eyes. Yep. And that's exactly what I got from her. And it's almost like she wanted to say to me, what's a, what's a good-looking guy like you wasting your life as a pastor? And she kind of looked at me and grinned, walked away, came back 30 seconds later and invited me to dinner that night. She said, hey, I wonder if you'd be my guest at dinner this, uh, tonight. Now, uh, she dines with her outgoing staff and her incoming night staff uh, on the first Monday of every month. This just happened to be the first Monday of the month. She invited me to be her guest. And this book, Dinner with Skeptics, describes six hours uh, of that dinner. Because when I came down, she already had a placard with my name on it at the end of the table. She sat herself at the end of the, the opposite end of this like nights of the round table. And her entire staff were on both sides. I, I was there for probably two minutes, and I took a sip of my Diet Coke, and then the questions started coming. They had been talking about me before I'd gotten there, and I knew something was not right. And it started when the, the uh, I, I, let's just use first names, Dan, who was in charge of hotel security. You could tell he drew the short straw, and he fired a question at me. He said, uh, so you're a pastor, are you, Jeff? I said, yeah. And I said, thanks for letting me uh, uh, join you guys for, for dinner. I mean, a five-star hotel dinner, this is going to be great. And I often say to people, I've spent my life trying to find the answers to the deepest, most penetrating questions of life. The deepest question is, what is life ultimately about? And the answer is free food. And so I was going to get free food. And I, I just thanked everyone. And uh, then Dan fired. He said, uh, and he was kind of angry. It came from a position of anger. He said, how, how on earth? Can you sit there and believe in God with all the evil in the world, man? How, how can you harmonize that? And then he took a big sip of his Australian beer, kind of slammed the, the beer on the table, sat back with a look of pride. You know, he had, he, he had been the one to start the conversation. And from there, I wish you could have seen the look on his face uh, when I said, hey, that is one of the questions I've struggled with, too. Uh, can we dialogue on that for a, for a moment? Can we just talk? Of course, he was surprised. He thought, there is nothing to talk about. There's no answer to that question. And I don't know how far you want to go to get into this, but there was an answer. We talked about it. And then there was a philosophy major at the University of Brisbane there as well. We talked about her question of pain, suffering, sadness in the world. We talked about hunger. We talked about micro-macro evolution. We got into uh, 
uh, uh, uh, quantum physics. We got into uh, the idea of multi-parallel uh, uh, universes. We got into everything. But by the end of the night, six hours, nobody left the table. Six hours. We were there till midnight. No one left the table because they were engaged in these conversations. Never once did I respond in anger. Never once was there any uh, attitude of, oh, yeah, my answer is better than yours. Now, there's a few times I felt attacked, but I, I knew I had been there myself. I knew those questions were important. How can we believe in hell? Come on, hell? God creates earth and then has a place called hell for a place for to punish people who don't come alongside and get in line? Really? How can you harmonize that? How can you harmonize children in Africa? They didn't know I'd lived in Africa for 10 years. Uh, swollen bellies of hunger? How can, you do, how can you deal with a religion whose primary symbol is a God dying on a cross? All the questions were covered, and at the end of the night, Laura, she's used first names, the managing director of the hotel, became a Christ follower. Her questions have been answered, and she was literally weeping. And I went around to the end of the table, and I said, you've had some of your questions answered. She goes, yeah, I, I have always known that God is real. There's just some things I had to get past. And apologetics isn't something that solves everything. There's so many questions in the universe, but it breaks down enough barriers to where you can actually start to ask, maybe this Jesus dude, maybe he's the real thing. Maybe he impacted history. Maybe the cross is the number one recognized symbol on planet Earth for a reason. Maybe the Bible is still the number one selling book for a reason. Maybe maybe this is real. And that's what happened to her. Jeff, sometimes we just don't know the answers ourselves. Sometimes we do know the answers, and sometimes it's like a pat answer. It's, mm. the, it's mm. the line that I can trot out. Yeah. How important is it to have the attitude about you the smile on your face, the warmth and embrace yeah. uh, in those conversations, because I'm sure that body language, mm. everything that that communicates as much as the answer, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, you've got it. There was a lot of humor that night, making fun of ourselves, taking the Mickey out of yourself. You know, you know. <laughs> I remember one of the questions about uh, free will. You know, and and that God created within each of us uh, because love is the highest value in the universe, the ability to choose to. To receive or reject him. Love cannot be authentic or genuine unless it's given freely. So if it's given freely, there's got to be the free will mechanism. And the free will mechanism opens up the door to evil because you may not use your freedom to pursue God. You may use it to pursue your own self-aggrandizement. The only way God could remove move all the evil in the world is to remove the free will mechanism. But if he removes that, then where is love? Genuine, authentic love. And that's the highest value of God's universe. So I was kind of making fun of myself and the way I wished I had a little laptop computer to pre-program my wife to do everything I wanted her to do, to say everything I wanted her to say. And they just found that humorous, that that, that computer program could exist. But in reality, it would be meaningless because anything Robin, my wife, said, did, would not be out of free will. Therefore, it would be meaningless. God knows that for love to exist on planet Earth— Gotta be a sense of freedom that we choose to reject him. The problem is by rejecting him, it wounds us more than it does him. And so yeah, it's good to be humorous and and you don't have to have all the answers, but you gotta have fun with the experience and make fun of yourself and tell them, hey, I don't know that, but I do know this. Jeff Vines is our guest. We're going to come back in just a few moments. Stay with us. We're talking with a man who is an evangelist, an apologist. He's the author of a book called Dinner with Skeptics. I'm going to ask Jeff, how do you prepare for your next dinner party or your next dinner engagement? We're back with more in just a short while. We're talking with the author of the book called Dinner with Skeptics, Jeff Vines, who pastors a church in the United States in California. The church is called Church of the Valley. 
Jeff, I was very interested in what you were sharing just a little earlier, uh, talking about the way that you conduct yourself when you're having dinner with people who are almost uh, from time to time attacking, bombarding you with questions, trying to bamboozle you, trying to trip you up because you're a Christian and surely there can't be a God who could allow all of those sort of bad things to happen. If you're preparing for your next dinner engagement with friends and you know that those sorts of conversations may well come up, what do you do to prepare? Yeah. One of my biggest concerns about riding dinner with skeptics is that people would assume that every time a conversation like this happens, somebody gets converted. <laughs> I've had a lot of conversations where no one uh, was changed or transformed at that moment. And so what I say to people, you don't have to be a great apologist. All you need to prepare is to tell your story, tell what Jesus has been doing in your life. That's what people really want to hear. If they hear that first, they'll be more mellow in the more difficult questions. Sometimes Christians allow uh, people to corner us in positions where there's really no way out. And don't get so caught up in the philosophical issues of life more than, hey, let me tell you first. I'll answer your question. I say this often. I'll answer your question, but can I first tell you the difference Jesus has made in my life? See, that's that's something that's inarguable. Either he's changed you or he's not. After I've done that, then I say, now, what are some of the questions you have? Well, how do you harmonize this? And sometimes I'll say, you know what? I struggle with that too. Do you think Christians don't struggle with that? We're trying to harmonize that too. But just because there are things I don't completely understand doesn't take away from the fact of the things I do understand. I do know that you're never going to convince anyone of any real logic that something comes from nothing. I mean, you don't have to be a, a, a quantum physicist or a rocket scientist to know that even the gases and the oxygen present in the Big Bang, if you want to go that route, you, something doesn't come from nothing. Somebody asked me once, what is your definition of nothing? And the best answer I've ever given is that which rocks dream about. Nothing. <laughs> they don't dream. It's nothing. And so let's start what we do know. Uh, even science in the last 30 to 40 years, now we know that the universe is not eternal. That used to be a, a big argument in years past. Hey, you say God is eternal. Why can't we just say the universe is eternal? Well, now we know it has a beginning point. It's been expanding, and the contraction and expansion in the beginning was so fine-tuned that uh, there has to be an, in- an intelligent designer. So even science now knows we know that it has a beginning, and what has a beginning has to have a beginner. So if we have to go all the way back, let's talk about the things we do know now the question is, has God revealed himself? People will often ask me, uh, how, how do you determine which worldview is accurate? Because there's so many. And the answer is, well, first of all, you start determining which worldviews are not accurate. Well, how do you know what's not accurate? Well, those worldviews that are not coherent, are not consistent from top to bottom in the five or four major issues of life, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. That's why in my debates with atheists in New Zealand, I'd always start at that point. Hey, you're not even consistent in your own worldview. What do you mean? Well, you're asking me how I can believe in God with all the evil in the world, but you're assuming evil exists. You can't assume evil exists unless God exists. Because without an absolute moral lawgiver, there's no absolute moral law to give you the absolute definitive categories of good and evil. Once you assume evil exists, you're assuming that there's a moral part to the universe. And so I start in places where people are already making assumptions. And uh, I go into these meetings with all of those in mind, but always knowing that I'm going to begin with the issue of what Jesus, first of all, has done in my life. And then I, from there, I can trace it backwards. How do I know Jesus is the Son of God? How do I know God revealed himself in Jesus? Those are the questions people ask that you can answer that are not offensive. 
Let me just take you back just a little because there are a lot of those different philosophical answers, mm. scriptural answers, mm. and you know you want to get to a point where you're talking about Jesus, yeah. where you're talking about the cross, where you're talking about the way God deals with sin. But let me take you back just to those things you were sharing about uh, saying you don't have all the answers, but let me tell you my story. Because there's something very important here, isn't there, insofar as Jesus has done something within us. Uh, he's changing us. He's transforming us. Uh, we are aligning ourselves in an identity that is like God, that is like Jesus. Our story is a powerful thing, and it doesn't replace those mm. elements of truth. But people identify with our lives because they can see something's different about us. They can see that there is change. We think differently. Mm. We act differently. Uh, how important this testimony? Yeah. Well, I look across the table here, and I'm looking at you, and I'm assuming, okay, we're probably around the same age. And uh, that's important because our generation was very much a word-read generation. And we uh, we did approach things from more of a philosophical point of view of evil, good, pain, and suffering. But what you just said describes the next generation. They really get pretty much bothered by these philosophical issues. They just want to know, are you real? Are you authentic? You know, what you say you believe, do you practice it every day? And this pragmatic issue of Jesus making a difference in your life, can you share that story and tell me those differences? Can I look at your life if I follow you around? That's the great. The greatest apologetic is never a philosophical argument. It is life change and transformation. Jesus knew that. That's why he walked around healing people. Think about it. What apologetic argument did Jesus ever enter into other than you were sick and now you've been made well? Your sins are forgiven. You know, uh, it, it's so let's be careful that we don't think we're so smart that we can answer all the questions, but I do think we have to break down some of the barriers that keep people from hearing our story. If they say, okay, this guy's thoughts through some of these things, his struggles are the same struggles as mine, then now let me hear what Jesus has done in his life. And this new generation, you know, your 30s and below, man, you'll tick them off if you start going too far down the road of, well, there's evil and pain and suffering and moral law. and No, no, no. Tell me and show me. Why should I receive Jesus into my life? What difference is it going to make? And that's why you don't have to be an apologist, man. Just be ready to tell people what Jesus is doing in your life. And, man, that will just soften the, the blow. Jeff, you've got some things coming up. Uh, we've been talking about your book, Dinner with Skeptics. Uh, but you've got a new book coming up called Divine Romance. Yeah. Uh, you're also uh, traveling various parts of the world talking about one life. One-on-one uh, -on -one evangelism ties in very nicely with these other books that you've already written. Uh, just quickly, uh, your thoughts on what you'll be producing with Divine Romance and, and One Life. Yeah. Well, uh, again, my history, uh, I, I grew up as a basketball player. Uh, my dream was to play in the NBA. I was a college All-American, made it, made it down the system quite a, quite a long way, and was really disappointed when, I, when the realization hit me that I would never be good enough to go that far. Uh, but the thing that bothered me was that I was always ashamed, if I can be honest, to invite my basketball buddies to church because the church I grew up in was so stinking boring. And I was afraid they would come and sit there and think, man, you brought me to this vines. What are you, crazy? Get me out of here. And it always bothered me. Even when I did work in Africa for those 10 years, I was still coaching basketball and helping develop the game of basketball in the late 80s. And then in New Zealand, I was coaching one of the professional teams, uh, co-coaching uh, the North Harbor Kings, uh, sponsored by Burger King. and that. So I still had my basketball buddies even when I'm in ministry, but I never felt comfortable to invite them uh, to my church. 
And this started me thinking about a couple of things. Number one, how do I invest in their lives uh, without any strings attached? How can I uh, talk to them about Jesus with them, without them thinking, oh, he's just want, he wants me to be another, another convert on his list of conversions? And so that's when I learned to invest in people for the sake of people, not for the sake of a number. And uh, I started having uh, just conversations and lunches with my, uh, with my basketball buddies. And this is where the idea of divine romance hit me hard. It started way back in the late 80s, early 90s. I had realized that every time I met someone who was not a Christian, as I got to know them and they began to tell me their story, that from the day, uh, from the get-go, they had a sense that God was there and that was there was something going on, but they qu- couldn't quite understand. And the more I listened to them, the more I realized, man, God has been wooing you into relationships since day one. And he woos all of us differently because we're all different personality and temperaments. For instance, I have two children. My son Delaney, when he was a little boy, all I had to do was look at him, he'd start crying. But my daughter, Sion, Man, if you tried to discipline her, she would smack you. I mean, she literally hit me right in the face at six years old. And so I went through the whole James Dobson and uh, boundaries and all that. But, so I related to these kids differently. Uh, God relates to us precisely in the manner of our temperament and personality. For some of us, he'll need to strip some things away from us so that we will recognize that there's something beyond that is worth living for greater than the temporary. For others, it's a soft touch. It's it's doing something at a very special opportunity in time where we say, wow, there's no other explanation for that other than something beyond. So he's always wooing and working. us. divine romance is about that God is always involved in our lives, and sometimes we've misinterpreted even the tragic events of our lives, thinking that God has abandoned us, in reality, we are right in the center of the will of God to woo us into relationship, that we would run away from the distant land in which we're living and come home to live with the Father. And so this one life idea is that evangelism is always going to be done best by one-on-one investing in people's lives, hearing their story, and then speaking back, do you realize this is God wooing you into relationship because he loves you, but he respects your free will so much that you've got to be the one to make the decision. He's not going to force you into this relationship, just like I could never force a woman to love me. Uh, love has to be something that's given freely. Think about it. But I could force a woman to do a lot of things, and it would some of them would be vile. But I can't force a woman to love me. That comes from the inside. It's a wooing. It's the courtship process. It's when man is at his deceptive best, right? <laughs> Whatever I have to do to convince this woman that I'm the man. God's different. God just shows you in reality who he truly is. And I'm trying to get churches to realize, because I pastor a large church. I mean, we're, we're 10,000 plus. And I've spent tons of money on huge programs and events to get all kinds of people in. And yes, it does some good. But we've had our best growth and best uh, evangelistic success when every person in the church assumes the responsibility to invest in somebody who is far from God to help them come near without strings attached because they they genuinely love the person and they know that it is not God's will that anybody should live in a distant land but instead at home with the Father. So I'm learning things. This is a thing I'm passionate about because I see the difference that's made in our church over the last probably four or five years. God's blessed you with great resources, but never forget our real problem in Australia, in America, in New Zealand. You know, I served in New Zealand for 10 years. And I do realize that there's a greater distance between the seeker and the believer in Australia than there is in America. There is because America's culture is so churched. Okay, There's a greater distance, but the distance can be closed. And it's closed by investing in one life at a time, praying that God will open doors, 
No strings attached. If the person never becomes a Christ follower, you love them because they are created in the image of God. And hearing their story and help them translate it in a possibly a different way that maybe the pain and the difficulties of their life simply part of God wooing them into relationship. Well, keep your eyes open for those books. Uh, the one we've been talking about just now, Divine Romance, coming out a little later this year. Uh, we've also been talking about Dinner with Skeptics and also a program on evangelism called One Life. Our guest, Jeff Vines, he pastors the church called Christ's Church of the Valley in California in the U.S., visiting Australia, and just great to be able to spend a little bit of time with you, Jeff. I really appreciate you taking time to share your heartbeat with our listeners here on 2020. Yeah, thank you for having me. Love Australia. Someday, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm going to live in this place. It may be when I'm retired, but I will make my way to Australia at some point. <laughs> Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts, or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.